the opioid epidemic didn't happen by accident. It happened because of a calculated decision in boardrooms across the country. And when each of these defendants in this courtroom saw that one of their competitors, one of their competitors hit the golden goose, hit the billion dollar blockbuster drug with OxyContin, they were not going to let them get away with it. And they've made money hand over fist, hand over fist while the people of our community have died. That is the essence of what the law calls a public nuisance. In this episode, we'll explore the concept and the law of public nuisance and their relationship to the conduct of prescription opioid manufacturers and opioid drugs and the opioid epidemic. Prescription opioids can be legally prescribed only if for a legitimate medical purpose. I am Jeffrey B. Simon, and this is Outside Counsel. Any prescribing of opioids that is induced by promotion that is false or misleading, contrary, or in addition to the FDA-approved label is unlawful because it's not for a legitimate medical purpose. It was induced for a false purpose or a misleading purpose or for a purpose that is not within the narrow constraints of the FDA-approved uses. Remember in a previous episode that addiction specialist Dr. Andrew Kaladin explained that the modern opioid epidemic was caused first and foremost by the overprescribing of opioid drugs that began in the mid to late 90s and continued for well more than 15 plus years as a result of false and misleading promotion by opioid drug manufacturers to doctors and consumers where they claimed the opioid drugs were more effective than they really are, less addictive than they really are, and should be prescribed more ubiquitously than they ever really should be. Dallas County, Texas has filed an opioid case against opioid manufacturers and distributors. And expert testimony in that case revealed that over 90% of opioid prescribing in Dallas County after 1997 was medically unnecessary. And Dr. Kolodny, who you'll remember from a previous episode of Outside Counsel, explained why long-term opioid use to treat non-cancer chronic pain has never been proven safe and effective, ever. And FDA approved labeling was not based on long-term studies. That's issue one. Issue two is, is that there's an abundance of data that people who take opioids on a perpetual basis for chronic pain do worse over time rather than better. And he explained why that was. The fact that the products carry FDA labels doesn't change that reality. People who take opioids for chronic pain on a long-term basis over time, statistically, do worse rather than better. As Dr. Kolodny explained in a previous episode, 
the opportunities for a family member to give or take an opioid to or from another family member, or the opportunity for one friend to give prescription opioids to another, or even to have one, that opportunity is greatly increased by the fact that there are just too many opioid pills out there. And the reason there are too many is because opioids are overprescribed as a result of 20 years of misinformation emanating from prescription opioid manufacturers about how often and what quantity and what doses opioids should be prescribed. It is against that backdrop. It is because of that set of conditions, which gave rise to the modern opioid epidemic, that governments who pay for the fallout of the opioid epidemic all over the country have filed claims against opioid manufacturers. I'm talking about states, counties, cities, Native American tribes, even hospital districts and school districts. One of the central allegations in these claims filed by governmental entities all across the country is that opioid manufacturers caused and fueled a public nuisance for which they are having to use an overwhelming amount of taxpayer money to deal with. Public nuisance means that the defendant, in this case, an opioid manufacturer, but there are other defendants in the opioid supply chain against whom public nuisance is alleged, that the defendant intentionally or negligently caused an unreasonable interference with or subversion of a public right. In opioid litigation, the public nuisance claim against opioid manufacturers is that they deceptively induced overprescribing of high-dose opioid drugs, which led to an oversupply of opioid drugs in those communities, which resulted in large and foreseeable increases in addictions, overdoses, deaths, and opioid-related crime. The allegation is that those bad outcomes drain taxpayer-collected public money through expenditures in healthcare, law enforcement, social services. The intended purpose of public nuisance cases is to hold opioid manufacturers financially accountable for the costs that must now be expended and over a period of years must be expended to substantially reduce the public harm that drug company misconduct is alleged to have caused. In recent months, there have been two published opinions in opioid litigation addressing whether or not under a particular state's law, public nuisance is or is not a viable cause of action. That is a viable legal theory of recovery under the facts presented to those courts. One opinion was written by the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma, and another was written by a trial court judge in California. Let's discuss those two opinions, both in summary and in some detail, with a keen eye as to what the rulings were, what the reasoning involved, and what their potential importance is as precedent. This was a case tried by the state of Oklahoma, the plaintiff, against a defendant who was an opioid manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson. It was tried to the trial court judge rather than to a jury, and it resulted in a verdict 
by the judge in favor of the state of Oklahoma for which he signed a judgment in the amount of $465 million, which he believed was the cost of abating. In other words, the cost of what it is necessary to reduce the public nuisance created as a result of corporate misconduct in the deceptive promotion of opioid drugs, in this case, Johnson & Johnson. Now, it's important to understand that the basis for recovery was public nuisance. However, it was not based on what we call common law public nuisance. It was based upon a specific statute in the state of Oklahoma, which described its public nuisance cause of action. And the fact that it was based on a statute becomes very important in understanding, A, how the court ruled, but also why the court didn't just stop with a ruling that was based on an analysis of, does this statute adequately address, provide a theory of recovery recognized under law for this conduct? When one looks at the opinion, in the very first paragraph, the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma makes this statement, what we cannot ignore is that improper use of prescription opioids led to many of these deaths. Few deaths occurred when individuals used pharmaceutical opioids as prescribed. In other words, this is a disease of abuse, right? Improper use. The problem with that proposition is that it is dubious at best. What do I mean by that? Number one, the opinion doesn't provide any factual support for that claim at all. It doesn't cite to some portion of the trial record where that point was established and otherwise deemed persuasive. That's issue one. Issue two, as we discussed, the Center for Disease Control says about one in four people who take opioids for chronic pain exactly as prescribed develop addiction. Here, the court focused on deaths. Dr. Kalani described in a previous episode, that's not the most meaningful metric. And the reason that it's not the most meaningful metric is because deaths are an endpoint. They're no longer addicted. In literal sense of the word, that's true. The problem in understanding this epidemic is if you focus on abuse or only on deaths for the purpose of describing its cause or parameters, you've missed what it really is. It is a public health crisis of rampant disease, specifically opioid use disorder, sometimes called opioid addiction. And the things that follow, deaths, abuse, even crime, those are often symptoms of opioid addiction. We talked in an earlier episode about what it is like for a person who is suffering from opioid addiction to try to deal with overwhelming withdrawal symptoms, ones that simply can't be managed by gritting your teeth or biting a belt. We talked about the fact that if my skin is on fire, there is nothing I will not do to find water to put it out. I will steal water from you. I will lie to you to get water, to put that fire out. 
Does that make me inherently a liar, a thief, or a cheat? No. Because in desperate situations, people do make desperate survival decisions. And that is precisely what opioid addiction does. Remember, it is the permanent chemical alteration of the brain's motivational priorities. To reduce opioid-related harms in your community, you have to reduce opioid addiction. You have to treat the disease. You cannot jail your way out of a public health crisis. We've tried that. You have to treat the rampant disease. And right from the beginning, it is evident to me that the Oklahoma Supreme Court saw this as a societal problem created by abusers rather than an epidemic of disease, which was started and fueled by corporate misconduct. The Oklahoma Supreme Court determined that in a hundred years of interpretation in case law, the Oklahoma public nuisance statute only applies in two circumstances where a crime has been committed that gave rise to the public nuisance, or where the nature of the public nuisance is the interference of public use of land. So that should have been the end of the analysis to me. I mean, it's very clear. The statute doesn't apply to these facts, even if proven. But what's interesting is how much more the Oklahoma Supreme Court had to say after reaching that conclusion in the first few pages and just knocking this case out of the box and just reversing the judgment of the trial court and rendering a judgment in favor of Johnson & Johnson. The court went on this very broad policy analysis that public policy disfavors in its estimation the application of public nuisance as a basis for recovery in cases like this. And when it does so, in my opinion, it includes a number of misstatements of fact, which are core premises from which it then reaches, I believe, misguided conclusions. Essentially, the Oklahoma Supreme Court says there are three bases public policy values which disfavor applying public nuisance to the claims which were proven against Johnson & Johnson. One is that the manufacturer and distribution of products rarely cause a violation of a public right. In the context of opioid litigation, that's not true. The overwhelming majority opinion in trial courts across the country in opioid litigation is that public nuisance is a viable cause of action for the harm that is claimed to have been caused by the opioid product manufacturers. This was a public nuisance, a flood of pills into our communities that caused addiction, caused deaths, and it caused all the related harms that most people don't even think about. We're, you know, we somehow, those of us that are that are focused in this, we forget about those related harms. The families, and you're gonna hear about it, how families are affected, how the, how the people who become addicted develop hepatitis B, hepatitis C, cardiac problems, heart problems, babies are born addicted. You're gonna hear about that. 
That's why it's a public nuisance. It has affected the core of what we feel comfortable with. There are some exceptions. There was a court in North Dakota that disagreed. There was a court in South Dakota that disagreed, both of whom were relying upon their own state statute, public nuisance, just like Oklahoma, as opposed to what we call common law public nuisance, which is not nearly as constraining. And there was a court in Connecticut. But in juxtaposition to that, there are scores of trial courts, including the federal opioid MDL trial court, where 3,000 governmental entity claims are consolidated, concluded that public nuisance is a viable theory of recovery for what is claimed in opioid litigation against opioid manufacturers. So simply by making the statement that the manufacturer and distribution of products rarely causes a violation of a public right, that is just flatly untrue from a numerical point of view in opioid litigation. That's issue one. Issue two is, so what if it were true? The issue is, what happened in this case and what was proven? Interestingly, they weren't very focused on the sufficiency of the evidence. They weren't very interested in, well, what was actually proven. It was simply A, even if proven, it doesn't meet the statute, and B, even if it meets the statute, which they concluded it didn't, it's otherwise you know, disfavored by public policy. And my only point is, if you don't care about the facts, why are you so interested in now essentially arguing from a policy perspective, how rare it is for these claims to be reached by public nuisance theories of recovery? Two, a manufacturer does not generally have control of its product once it is sold. So a little background. In public nuisance claims, the plaintiff has to prove that the defendant has what's called control of the instrumentality. Essentially, it is their conduct which is creating the public nuisance and that they have the ability by reversing that conduct, changing it, stopping it, whatever, to reduce the public harm. Here, the court has concluded a manufacturer does not generally have control of its product once it's sold. This is the idea that, well, once the manufacturer sells the product, well, a distributor ships it to a retail pharmacy and then a doctor, you know, prescribes it. And of course, the manufacturer is not the doctor and they don't meet with the doctor, which of course is not true. Um, and, you know, then uh, you know, the pharmacy decides whether or not to dispense the drug to the patient, and then the patient takes the drug home, and what they do with it, it's not within the manufacturer's control. And so they reach the conclusion, well, the manufacturer, once it sells the product, has no control of the instrumentality. That is a very dubious claim if one actually understands what the opioid manufacturer's regulatory responsibilities are in relation to the manufacture and sale of opioid drugs. And that is because opioid manufacturers are DEA registrants. They can't just sell opioid drugs. They have to get a license to do it. And when they get that license, they onboard a significant number 
of responsibilities about how they do that. And one of them is, is that they have to maintain effective systems of control against diversion of their opioids. They have to monitor every single order for their opioids to determine whether they are suspicious for diversion. They can't ship a single opioid lawfully if they do not have effective systems of control, period. If they do not dispel the suspicion through adequate due diligence investigation, they cannot ship those orders of opioids. So the idea that a prescription opioid manufacturer, A, has no knowledge of what's happening in the downstream use of its opioids is patently false. And secondly, that they could not use that information to stem diversion, for example, opioid manufacturers have a non-delegable duty to maintain effective systems of control against diversion. So for the Oklahoma Supreme Court to say, you can't pin this on them, they don't have any duty or knowledge down there, is just simply factually wrong. But apparently a point to their decision-making. Lastly, the Oklahoma Supreme Court concluded from a policy perspective, a manufacturer could be held perpetually liable for its products under a nuisance theory. This is the idea that, well, Johnson & Johnson stopped selling opioids in 2015, so why should they have to fix problems in relation to, you know, harms caused in 2018 from opioids, or 19, or 20, or 21? Well, wait a minute. Doesn't that require a little factual analysis rather than just a policy judgment? This idea that, well, they shouldn't be liable because there's been a passage of years misses the larger point. Shouldn't there be some factual analysis about those relationships? Can you just wave your hand and say, you know what? Hey, after a few years, it's really not worthy of, of any further analysis from a policy perspective. I find that dubious. Prior to the Oklahoma decision, there was a decision at the, a trial court in the state of California. The counties of Orange County, California and Santa Clara, California, brought claims against opioid manufacturers, including Johnson & Johnson. And the basic theory was the same, public nuisance based on a California state statute for public nuisance and a couple of other statutory claims where they basically alleged that the deceptive promotion of opioid drugs to doctors and consumers violated uh, provisions of their business code in relation to false advertising. And to just get to the punchline, the trial court, the trial judge was the trier of fact. Just like in the Oklahoma case, there was no jury. The trial judge decided it. In the Oklahoma case, the trial judge decided it in favor of the plaintiff, the state of Oklahoma, later reversed by the Oklahoma Supreme Court. In the California case, the trial court decided it in favor of all of the opioid manufacturers determined that the plaintiff failed to prove its case. In other words, the court was less concerned with what are the policy considerations here in the way the Oklahoma Supreme Court clearly was. It was just you plaintiffs, didn't prove your case to me. And specifically, they failed to prove two things, according to him. One, that the public interference was unreasonable rather than just regrettable. 
What do I mean by that? In order to prove a public nuisance that is actionable, one has to prove that the nuisance is a significant interference that interferes with a public right and that it affects a substantial portion of the community. And the second is, is that the condition itself, the interference itself is unreasonable. And what this court concluded is, it's no secret that opioids are addictive. It may well be true that the conduct of the opioid manufacturers in promoting these drugs increased opioid addiction and even overdose deaths, the court says. However, that's not in and of itself unreasonable in his estimation. There are known risks associated with opioid drugs. That's why they're controlled substances. The FDA approved these drugs, his reasoning went. California permits the sale of these drugs. California even had a statute to ensure that people who needed opioid drugs for intractable pain could get them. And his logic was, it is unfortunate that there is an opioid epidemic and it is unfortunate if corporate conduct contributed to it, but these are quote unquote lawful drugs. And if an epidemic has been created by the overprescribing of lawful drugs, he is not convinced that that satisfies the requirement of unreasonability. His reasoning also in that vein was that to establish unreasonability, the plaintiffs, these two counties through their lawyers, needed to show that fraudulent or misleading representations were actually made to physicians which induced prescribing of opioids for medically unnecessary reasons. And that it is the medically unnecessary prescribing of opioids that you defendants induced that is the cause of the condition about which you claim to be public nuisance. And what he says is they just didn't prove that. The point I'm trying to make is, is that the California case, unlike the Oklahoma case, is a very factually oriented decision based on the evidence in that case. And it's not just from the opinion that I draw that conclusion based on its reasoning, but the trial court, in my opinion, chided the plaintiff's lawyers in his opinion for not having given him this proof. He writes, plaintiffs could have shown or at least attempted to show that defendants' marketing and promotion caused healthcare providers to write medically inappropriate prescriptions. Plaintiffs could have shown, or at least attempted to show, singly or in the aggregate, how many medically inappropriate opioid prescriptions were written, and the correlation between those numbers and or the increase in numbers and the defendants' marketing efforts. The court will not opine on all the ways in which plaintiffs could have sought to discharge their burden, but plaintiffs sought to introduce no such evidence. I can tell you as a lawyer, having tried cases for 30 years, if you read that and you tried the case, you think that's unkind. You think that's a slight. I personally believe that although there will be courts that agree with the reasoning of these cases, there will also be lots of courts that don't. 
Is it ever going to wind its way up to the United States Supreme Court for some determination? I don't know that. I don't claim to know that. But I know this. These two cases, especially the Oklahoma case, contain considerable misstatements of fact. In the California case, which I perceive to be a better opinion because it is not so long in policy in value judgments based on misperceptions of fact, that in the California case, it does appear that this central premise that the opioid epidemic is one characterized by abuse rather than disease was also something the trial court believed. In the very first paragraph, the trial judge in the California case does say drug abuse, including opioid abuse, affects not only the individuals directly involved, but their family, friends, doctors, and other medical care providers, emergency rooms, law enforcement, and indeed all those impacted at each step of the drug abuse cycle. That fact is absolutely true. But what usually precedes opioid abuse is opioid addiction. And until one understands that this is a disease epidemic where a person with legitimate complaints of pain seeing a well-intended doctor winds up with a life-threatening chronic disease, if one does not understand that central premise and that opioid addicted people are patients more than abusers, you misunderstand the problem that leads all too easily to misconstruing the solution. The Oklahoma Supreme Court, with all due respect, in my estimation, clearly misunderstood some things. The Oklahoma Supreme Court said, well, public health is not a public right. And therefore, public nuisance can't exist here as a viable cause of action because Public nuisance exists only for the unreasonable and substantial interference with the public right. Whether public health is a public right is, I think, a value judgment. It's not as though there was any factual analysis to set forth that proposition. It was just, well, people's health concerns are their own. And even if you aggregate a lot of them, that's a whole lot of individual rights, but not a public one. Whether that's true or not true, it misses the much larger point, which is that all of the harms that affect governance, that is the expenditure on healthcare and social services for the indigent, whether it's treatment of prescription opioid addiction, whether it's overdoses on opioids, whether it's the treatment of infants who are born not just addicted to opioids, but into poverty, is paid by taxpayers. It's public money. And to the extent that drug company deception created an epidemic that has created an unreasonable drain on public resources, which are taxpayer funded, of course that is interference. The fact that there was no consideration of that, it was just public health is not a public right, concerns me. Products liability claims allege that the product itself is defective. It was rendered dangerous because it was manufactured defectively. It was rendered dangerous because it was designed defectively, or it was rendered dangerous because 
it was labeled ineffective. I saw nowhere in the Oklahoma Supreme Court opinion where they pointed to any part of the trial record where the plaintiff, the state of Oklahoma, attempted to prove that prescription opioids, or in this case, Johnson & Johnson's prescription opioids, were inherently defective. In other words, if that is something they tried to prove, it's actually not supported in the reported opinion. And in fact, in our cases, the ones that I do on behalf of governmental entities across the country, not only do we not assert that prescription opioids are inherently defective or mislabeled, we specifically, on behalf of our clients, disclaim any theory of recovery based on product defect or the labeling of the product. What we claim is not that the product was defective or that it was labeled defectively, but the conduct of the opioid manufacturers what's defective. They deceived doctors through fraudulent and or misleading representation about the safety and efficacy of those drugs in contradiction to how they're labeled. I was also concerned, and by what I perceive to be and have tried to explain to be their misstatements of fact that form the premise from which they then made policy judgments, but because they never dealt with the largest policy issue associated with the epidemic. Who should pay for all the harm that has been done by corporate malfeasance in causing the opioid epidemic? Should it be the companies that caused it, or should it be the taxpayers who suffer from it? I think the answer to that question is easy. Obviously, it should be the companies. But in what was a very long policy analysis, the Oklahoma Supreme Court never even grappled with that. And going back to their conclusion, well, products liability claims exist, and these claims can be brought in products liability, but not public nuisance. My question is, is that really what you want from a policy perspective in the state of Oklahoma? There are thousands of people in the state of Oklahoma who are addicted to prescription opioids. I don't think that point's even in dispute. There's a lot of harm that's happened. When that harm happens, it also has significant impact on the expenditure of public money in healthcare, social services, and law enforcement. Is the Oklahoma Supreme Court saying that the, the better way to use the court system in the state of Oklahoma is that for each one of those thousands of people who are suffering from opioid addiction that was induced from what was otherwise well-intended prescribing for a legitimate complaint of pay, or for the families whose lives have been destroyed by the death of someone who became opioid addicted in that way and died, they should all just bring individual claims, thousands of them, in the court system of the state of Oklahoma? Or does it make more sense that they should be able to aggregate, at least as taxpayers, along with those who are paying the freight and have not been as directly impacted by opioid harm? Individual claims, thousands of them, and products liability is the more, from a policy perspective, sensible way to think about how to resolve these matters than for the total public harm attributable to opioid manufacturers, whatever it may be, as one action brought by the public for harm which is so pervasive, it is obviously public in nature and indisputable when you're talking about the expenditure of public taxpayer money. They never even considered that policy question, which to me is self-evidently the most imperative. 
If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Counsel. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon. On the next episode of Outside Counsel, we'll be digging into the socioeconomic factors that play a role in the opioid epidemic. My colleague, friend, attorney, and activist, Larry Taylor, will be joining us for an in-depth and candid discussion of how the opioid crisis is affecting communities of color in America and communities that are stricken by poverty.